0: Well, good morning, Travis family, and so glad that you have tuned in uh, to be with us this morning remotely. Um, I'm going to invite you to open up to the Book of. Acts. We have transitioned out of the book of Jonah, and I have decided over the course of really the next three months or so, carrying us through the weight of the summer, the majority of the summer, we're just going to sort of settle in to this book to lead us into the fall. A couple of reasons why I want to do this, uh, sort of to set the stage or the scenario uh, before us. Um, I'm hearing lots of talks and conversations. I'm participating in Zoom conference calls, talking with many of you and other folks about What does church look like when we come back? It's a question that is deeply pressing on all of the churches who are seeking to return and preparing to return here just in a few short weeks. But one of the things the Lord has been stirring in my heart all along through this process is no matter what church ultimately looks like when we come back and how we do things, The thing that the Lord has just gently been whispering in my ear and through his word and been speaking to me is that though things may change in how we do things, God's principles and his functions and his word has not changed. And so the order and the prescription, if you will, about how God wants churches to act and to respond is no different today in the midst of a pandemic than it was 2,000 years ago in the book of Acts in particular. And I think Acts is formative for us because it reminds us of this pressing call that we have as the people of God to be evangelists, to seek out those that are far from God. It also gives us this, uh, this, this, this duplication of, Of what to follow and how the church should be and how we should function, seeking to be faithful in all that God has called us to do. And so this morning, as we celebrate Mother's Day, but we also celebrate transitioning into our series, into the book of Acts, I'm going to invite you to read along with me as I read just the first four or five verses beginning in Acts chapter one, where Dr. Luke writes as follows. He says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but rather to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we pray that you would speak to us and change us, that you would let us Uh, look more like your son Jesus, having heard your word and received it. Lord, we pray that you would transform our hearts that leads us to action in our community and to the uttermost parts of the world. So would you help us during this time and be faithful as you always are, we pray in Christ's precious name. It was about 15 years ago, I was sitting in an evangelism class at Southwestern Seminary here in Fort Worth where I heard the story for the very first time of the events leading up to what's known as the Third Great Awakening, really the first awakening that originated here within our country. And it's the story of a businessman by the name of Jeremiah Lampierre. In 1857, God had called him in the midst of some very trying times within his culture and within his city of New York City. God began to burden his heart and he began to burden his heart for prayer. He began to burden his heart that God would move in some miraculous ways. And so he set out as God led him to, to to begin a, a prayer meeting and this prayer meeting just was a call to all of the businessmen and the business leaders who were caught up, get this, in the midst of social anxiety, in the midst of great apprehension. Jeremiah's heart was just simply to to lead his people in prayer and, and to set an example for that. And so he publicized that at noon each day, there would be a prayer meeting that would take place in this formerly known as this Dutch Reformed Church there in New York City. And the heart of Jeremiah's meeting and the heart of his, po- of his heart, his posture of his heart during this time was just simply this. The, the prayer meeting consisted of this question, Lord, what would you have me do? And so in the fall of 1857, this meeting began, the very first meeting. And after the first 30 minutes of this hour-long prayer meeting over lunch, no one showed up. But pretty soon after the 30 minutes, someone else joined and then another. And then that very first day that Jeremiah met, there were about six people that gathered to pray to just ask the question before the Lord, Lord, what would you have us do? Over the course of the next few weeks and over the course of the next few months, God began to multiply and he began to stir in the hearts of his people a desire to pray and a desire to see the lost saved. And so the following week, he had about 20. And then the next week, he, he had about 40. But by January of 1858, almost three months later, the crowds had gathered to this particular location where three stories of that building were full of people crying out to the Lord, just simply asking, Lord, what would you have me do? By the spring Over 6,000 people were gathering all across New York City, but it wasn't just limited to New York. Places like Pittsburgh and Chicago and Philadelphia began to experience the winds of revival as God's people began to seek him and to call upon his compassion to save those that were far from God. It was really the nexus or the beginning of the Third Great Awakening, where we saw almost, by, by most historians counts, um, close to a million people were saved over the course of the next few years. that came to know Christ and his goodness, all beginning in the heart of a man who just simply wanted to pray and wanted to lead his people in a posture of prayer. And it ultimately turned out into this incredible movement, the first awakening that really originated here within the United States of America. And it existed during a time where there was great division amongst all of the people. They were deeply divided politically. They were divided over social issues like slavery at this moment. There was economic calamity. There was uncertainty. There was, yes, pestilence, and there was even disease during this time, but God began a mighty work that can only be accredited to him. Well, in the book of Acts, beginning in chapter one, we see a similar mighty move of God. We We see the beginnings of God starting something and planting something and beginning something new that would truly shake the grounds of eternity forever. If you notice in the text, it begins in verse one where he says in, this first, in the first book, O Theophilus. Now, we know that, that Luke is the author of Acts and Luke wrote the gospel of Luke and, and he is speaking to his friend at this moment. We know from other scriptures like in Colossians 4 that, that Luke was actually a physician, He was a meticulous man who paid very close attention to detail. He was all about really one thing. He was about the gospel. He knew Paul and there was a friendship that existed between Luke and Paul. In fact, uh, there's an instance described in scripture where Luke the physician goes and he visits Paul while Paul is held captive in prison. But yet one of the things that's remarkable about Luke's writings in his gospel and in the book of Acts is we notice the absence of Luke ever talking really about Luke. Luke knew that there was a greater story that he was caught up in. There was a a narrative being written by God that Luke found himself in, documenting the truths of what was happening with Jesus. But Luke knew enough not to make all that was going on about himself and even though he was friends with the Apostle Paul, you, you don't really see him uh, with this braggadocious nature or notion. He didn't have Twitter to name drop uh, whoever it was that he was running with, that, that here was this humble physician who cared about one thing and it wasn't himself, but it was about the welfare of other people wrapped up in the kingdom of God. And so Luke writes to his friend and he begins to detail the history of the church or really beginning to detail the history post-resurrection of Jesus. Now, I don't want us to miss the irony. We, uh, beginning this week, about midweek, if my calculations are right, we, we are somewhere within this week around Thursday, about 40 days since we have celebrated Easter Sunday. And it's 40 days after the resurrection of Jesus where the scripture says that he was appearing to the disciples and he was offering these many proofs in verse 3, appearing to them during the 40 days and he was speaking about the kingdom of God. But one of the places that most Baptists miss in talking about the gospel is that we typically leave the gospel at the resurrection. And while the resurrection is pinnacle to everything that we believe, one of the things that we need to understand, particularly as Baptists, is that there was the promise of the deliverance of the Holy Spirit that was going to come upon the church in power. And for whatever reason, over the course of history, we Baptists have have become deeply afraid and terrified of talking about the Spirit of God. friend, I want to tell us this morning and admonish us as a church and encourage us as a church that we need the Holy Spirit of God to send the winds of revival in our hearts before we begin to see the awakening in our city that we long for. And you'll notice he writes this to Theophilus and and he instructs this, this teaching by Jesus where in verse two, he says, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands, telling the disciples through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, presents himself alive to them after suffering, showing the proof and while staying them in verse four, notice what the text says. It says, he orders them, he commands them, do not depart for Jerusalem, but rather... You're going to wait for the promise of the father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you are going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not so many days from now. One of the things that's interesting here in the text in verse five is that when Jesus tells the disciples that the spirit of God is coming and you're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In the original language, that that word, uh, be baptized, it's put in a passive tense. And the reason why Luke does this in sharing what Jesus was talking about, the reason why he would pay attention to the tense in which the verb is rendered to the church today is because it is meant to be as a reminder when we study the scripture, reminding ourselves of salvation, that in the passive sense, we have zero to do with our salvation. We have zero to do with bringing anything that is worthy of any kind of honor or esteem to the kingdom of God. In fact, all that we have uh, are like filthy rags before him and the righteousness that we declare before our city and that we remind ourselves of daily and we remind our church of the righteousness that we have today in Christ is solely because of Christ. And so when My friends in other denominations seek a a baptism of the Spirit. Oftentimes it's misaligned with this understanding that they can somehow earn or work their way to achieving that. But here in the text, we see in this passive sense, he simply just says, you will be baptized. God will do the work. God will sovereignly oversee what is about to happen. But then we move on in verse six and notice what he says. He says, so when they had come together... They asked him, they say, Lord, uh, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he says to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. So here's the scene. Jesus has been crucified and put to death. He's been resurrected. He's been walking with them um, in and out for 40 days. And and all along leading up to the crucifixion and the resurrection, these men were longing for the day that that Jesus was going to to, to rise up uh, his people and that he was going to establish his kingdom over the kingdom of the Romans and over the kingdom uh, of the ruler of the world at the time. And and, and God, let your kingdom be done. And so he dies, he resurrects, he he, he demonstrates who he is. And the disciples are like, okay, uh, um, what next? Are you finally going to fulfill the promise that that we've been longing for, that we've been asking for? A very innocent question and, and an appropriate question. But notice what what Jesus says to them. It's not for you to know the times or even the seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority. This week. Um, I've been informed uh, by many in our church of this new set of of insect that has made its way from Asia that is seeking to invade the United States. Uh, It's it's known as just simply what what they're calling it is the murder hornet. And, And it's a hornet that exists solely to decapitate honeybees. And they say, they describe the, the sting of this, of this hornet as one that like you've been infused with like hot metal uh, and lava within your skin. It, we, we do not want these insects to thrive uh, here in the United States. Asia can keep those things, Okay. But several of my friends have joked that, that we've asked the question, hey, uh, uh, for some of my dispensational friends to pull the, the dispensational charts out and, and where does the murder hornet fit uh, in the scenario of the end times? And, and the truth is that, that we don't know and, and we don't really know if, if the murder hornets are a part, but I might suspect based on what they do and, and, and how they do it, that they probably are a part of the end times, my friend. But notice what Jesus says here. He says it's it's not for you to know the seasons or the times because the Father is fixing those by his own authority. But I want you to notice what he then begins to promise the disciples and this is where we'll spend the remainder of our time this morning. He says, but the promise is this, that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. What an incredible promise that Jesus leaves the church. You will be filled with my Holy Spirit and you will be empowered to be my witnesses to the uttermost parts of the world. I want you to to focus in just for a moment on this word that he uses, just simply describing his people as being his witness. This is a word that we're going to see no less than 39 different times in the book of Acts. I got onto my little accordance program uh, just this past week and I thought, I wonder how often that word is used throughout this book. And close to 39 times we're going to see this repetitive nature of the people of God called to bear witness to the good news of the gospel and to proclaim it. And to be a, a witness for, for our Savior is, is simply meaning this, that, that we intend to embody the gospel, but to bear witness means that we must always use our words. To bear witness here in this moment is an exclamation that all of God's people who have been sealed with the Spirit are called to bear witness, to be involved in growing and expanding the kingdom of God. Friend, I wanna tell you this morning that to be witnesses for our savior, that we cannot be the water boys in the game of life, that our lives must display the inner reality of what we externally proclaim and that we must be a people that are driven by the gospel, that our mission and our church is shaped by that very gospel. That there are no just impartial fans of Jesus. There are people that are on the field actively per- uh, um, contributing to the cause of the kingdom. Or there are those that are on the sideline, but, but those people don't really exist within the kingdom. You might be sidelined temporarily because of sickness or, or, or ailment, but, but the reality of the gospel is, is very plain spoken here in the book of Acts. Every member, every person a witness it's a reminder that the gospel is about going and telling and not coming and seeing. A witness goes and, and they proclaim things. They, they use their, their lips and their words and their mouth. Oftentimes I hear that one of the, the greatest objections to evangelism is, is well, I'm a, I'm a witness with my life. And I'm gonna witness with my lifestyle. I see this in a lot of younger churches and and I don't mean to minimize the lifestyle evangelism because we need Christians to be real and authentic in how they live. and, And we need to make sure that whatever we're saying that our lives match those very things. But the gospel we must not forget is not about the good example that we leave behind, but rather the gospel is a message of what Jesus has already done. It's not about us. It's not about how good we are or or what we've contributed or how we've served, but rather the gospel is a message of the past of what Jesus has done and who he died for and then how he is still saving people today in this very moment. We must witness and we must share. And and if we have reduced the gospel just to a lifestyle, I, I wanna challenge you to think about it in this way. The next time you watch a news broadcast on television, try turning off the volume and turning off the closed captioning. And just watch for a moment the lifestyle of the newscaster. Watch how nice they dress and and how well-groomed they are. Look at their facial expressions. All of those things must be pointing to whatever it is that he's talking about. But without the words and the proclamation, the news doesn't mean anything Try listening to your favorite video on YouTube, whether you're a Southern Gospel fan or you like modern contemporary worship, whatever that is, but go online and and turn the volume all the way down. Turn the closed captioning off. Yes, it may be meaningful watching them and, and maybe you can kind of understand what's going on, But it won't be as powerful without the words that we hear and we proclaim. The same is true of sharing the gospel with other people. He says, You were to be my witnesses. This is the mission itself. But listen, there's also this extent to which the mission exists. Notice what he says He says, In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, we have to be a people that we understand the truth that we are a church and a people, that we are for our city and at the same time, we are for the nations. But we must recognize this idea that there can be no burden for distant people without a burden for the unreached neighbors that exist amongst us. God wants to save the people in our city. God wants to save the people in the uttermost parts of the world. And we must answer the question why is it that we go into our neighborhoods? Why is it that we go to the Samarias, into the uttermost parts? Why? Because the gospel commands us to. It commands and it demands that we cross ethnic and cultural boundaries to see every tribe and nation and tongue, to see the vision of Revelation 7, 9 fulfilled, where I saw this great multitude of every tribe, nation and tongue worshiping before the risen Lamb. This is the heart of of our church. This is the heart behind the message when Jesus says, you will be and bear my witnesses. This is the extent of the mission. But let us not forget to back up at the beginning of verse eight and notice he says, the power you're gonna receive is the power of the Holy Spirit of God at work in you. If today in the quietness of our living rooms, we, we claim to be Christians And walking with God, then then it comes with the understandable truth that the Spirit of God resides within us. That we walk, and we choose, and we think, and we sing, and we work, and we labor in the power of the Spirit of God working inside of us. And the Spirit of God will never enter into your life and allow you to be the same person And so when we look back on our lives and and we look back on our habits, that it's imperative for us to ask the question, if I've really been born of the Spirit, am I a changed man or a changed woman? What difference has it made? Am I bearing witness to all that I come in contact as led by the Spirit? We've been created to be a place that God indwells And what that means is, is that everywhere we go ought to be changed and influenced for the betterment of the kingdom before we were there because we have the spirit of God within us. This is what he means when he says, you will receive power when the spirit of God comes amongst you. One of the things that I think the Lord is doing, not just in our church, but in all churches, is he is bringing us back to a place where we're reminded of really what worship ultimately is. And, and I want to say this without being controversial. Worship is not just music. Worship is not confined to just singing in a certain way with a certain stylistic preference. Listen, worship is with our livelihoods. Worship cannot be devoid from the gospel that we proclaim. We sing about it and we sing it with passion, but, the, but the, the true heart of worship is that we are living and embodying the gospel and proclaiming it at the same time. And I think one of the things that the Lord is doing amongst his church is he is stripping us of the things that are superfluous to the gospel. And he's bringing us back to a very, basic place or hopefully if you're like me we're remembering how how nitpicky we can often be over over little things that ultimately don't matter eternally. God's reckoned with my heart uh, on things over the past eight weeks just in regards to this that what matters and what only matters the main thing that's the main thing and keeping the main thing the main thing is the word of God and the more we speak the word of God and read the word of God and study the word of God, the more we understand who Jesus is, the more we understand uh, the spirit of God transforming us and, and illuminating truth. And the more we glorify our father in heaven because of those things, that is the purpose. That is the reason. This is what God is doing as he is bringing his people back to his side. Today, May 10th, 2020, It's a significant day in the life of our denomination. Some of you may or or may not know, but today marks the 175th anniversary of the establishment of our foreign mission board or what we call the International Mission Board. For 175 years, think about this, we as Southern Baptists, for over 100 years here at Travis, we as Travis Avenue, we have maintained an uninterrupted witness to the nations. That we have believed, Acts 1.8, that we will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon us and we are going to be witnesses in our cities, in Jerusalem, in our states, in Judea's, and in our surrounding Samaria's and the uttermost parts of the world. But we recognize 175 years of service. I don't know if you know this, but there's about a dozen or so retired International Mission Board personnel that are here at our church that are participating in in our services that are involved in in the membership life of of this church i remember years ago when when haley and i were looking at seminaries and we had friends that were going the, the route of Bible churches or non-denom. And, and we had a discussion amongst us about what our path might be. And, and we unequivocally then over 15, 16 years ago, we, we said we, we want to be Southern Baptist first and foremost, not just because of the doctrinal integrity and the beliefs, but because we deeply believe in what our international mission board is doing. We deeply believe in the over 3,640 personnel that are scattered across this world proclaiming the gospel. We deeply believe in the 847 people groups that we've engaged as a denomination to share the gospel. We deeply believe in the 13,988 churches that we have planted as a denomination through the International Mission Board. We deeply believe in the 18,428 pastors that we have trained directly and indirectly through the International Mission Board. We deeply believe in the 52,586 overseas baptisms that we've experienced as a denomination over this past year. We deeply believe in what they are doing. And as we continue to give faithfully, if you didn't know this, let me remind you of this, that, that just 10 percent of what we give towards the budget, it goes straight out the door. Nine percent of that goes straight to the Cooperative program that's used to support entities like the International Mission Board, which, which we should be so deeply very proud of. They are the, are the crown jewel, in, in my mind, no offense to the other entities, but they are the crown jewel of Southern Baptist life. Those are our heroes. Those are the people whom we celebrate. But I want us to end this morning with a simple question that was asked way back in 1857 by that businessman in New York City. And the question is just simply this, in the way that he led that prayer meeting that ultimately stirred the third great awakening, Lord, what will you have me to do for you? This morning, I want you to ask that question, whether it's to write a check to our international mission board, whether it's to be on mission for his kingdom and to seek and to save the lost, to pursue someone far from him, whether it's to reconcile a relationship, uh, whether it is to get something in your life that, that's not right and you know what that is, to, to be reconciled to God and man, simply ask the question, Lord, what would you have me do? But, but here's the catch, friend. It is a dangerous question to ask the Lord and to mean it. Because when we ask that question with sincerity of heart, we better be ready for what God may and might do through it. For us to call on the compassion of our God to save those far from him, to use our church, Travis Avenue, to spur on another third great awakening or a fourth great awakening. Lord, what would you have me do today? If you're watching this and you do not know Christ, my prayer is that you would come to know him in the fullness and the riches that come with giving your life to him. The Bible says that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to hear us and to forgive our sins. And that the only way that we are reconciled to the father is through The Son. And I want to encourage you that if you've never prayed to receive Christ, we want you to give your heart to the Lord Jesus this morning. To just simply say to Him, Lord, I'm a sinner and I need the forgiveness of my sins that comes through you. You pray that prayer however it is that you want to say it, however it is that you want to word it, and receive the goodness of God in your life and to receive eternal life. The church family. Our posture this morning is just simply this, Lord, what will you have me do? So as we fade out this message, as you begin to pray in your living rooms with your family, husbands, lead your wives, children participate and just, just pray. Don't say much beyond that. Just say, Lord, what would you have us do? I know that today's Mother's Day and I would contend that for most mothers, who are still with us today, that the greatest way you can serve them as a husband or as a child is you should share your thanks and appreciation. But perhaps the greatest way you can fill that mama's heart is for her to know that you are walking with God and you are praying that prayer. Lord, what would you have me do? Let that be your prayer this morning. I love you and I will see you again, Lord willing, next week. God bless.